This is episode 32 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Deborah Suter, and we will be discussing all things about the Yale Swallow Protocol. So is this protocol right for your facility? Is it right for your patients? Can it be modified at all? What do you do if you can't follow the entire protocol? So we are putting Dr. Suter on the hot seat today to explain all things Yale Swallow Protocol. So... Uh, Dr. Deb Suter is the director of the Voice at Swallow Clinic and associate professor in the Division of Communication Sciences and Disorders. She's a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and currently serves on the boards of the American Board for Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders and the Dysphagia Research Society. Dr. Suter's specialized training includes the evaluation and treatment of swallowing disorders, and she works as a member of the multidisciplinary ALS clinic and is a certified provider of LSVT for treatment of voice changes associated with Parkinson's disease and related disorders. Dr. Suter has presented on the topics of swallowing and swallowing disorders at local, national, and international conferences and has published the results of her research in a number of peer-reviewed publications. She is also the co-author of a book on the Yale Swallow Protocol that she and Dr. Stephen Leader from Yale University School of Medicine developed. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hope everybody's having a great week so far. I am so excited for this episode today. I'm just such a big fan of Dr. Suter's work and the late Dr. Stephen Leader's work and everything they've done with this Yale Swallow Protocol. So really excited to hear kind of her words about everything. Um, And I just want to say there is kind of some poor audio at parts in this. I don't know what happened. I, we're getting just pounded with snow. So I don't know if it was my internet connection, but, um, we smoothed it out. I had about three different audio engineers go through and, and do as best as they could with it. So please bear with it. There's just a few spots that are rough. So no need to email me and tell me how crappy the audio is at parts. I'm aware, but I also didn't want to waste Dr. Suter's time and and not air this episode because it's so, 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 so good. So, um, and with that said, I also, you know, in Dr. Suter, when we were talking about what she was going to talk about, you know, obviously we assumed it'd be the Yale Swallow Protocol, but, you know, kind of what exactly did we want to talk about? And I was like, well, I don't know. So, (laughs) and usually I have a good idea when when the guests come on. Usually I kind of know what I want to talk about, but... I decided to poll our Patreon supporters, Um, so I'm so grateful to everyone that donates to Patreon to keep this podcast going. So I polled them, so I got nine questions back from our Patreon supporters. So uh, Dr. Suter addressed all of their questions, either in the episode or I asked her. Um, I asked her the, the questions myself, so thank you to everyone that contributes on Patreon. So kind of something I'm hoping to do in the future more is really get more feedback, get more involvement from our Patreon supporters. So with that said, uh, we also do have a sponsor that helps us keep things rolling around here. That's endohd.com, endohd.com forward slash contact. And they will be at DRS this week. I don't know if anybody's going to DRS. I'm going. I'm so excited to see everybody. I love this conference. It's so fun. Um, You just, oh my gosh, you learn so much. 
my brain's going to explode by the end of the week. But <laughs> if you're going to DRS, come say hi. Go stop by to EndoHD. They've got some really cool new technology. I'm pretty pumped to play with it myself. So go check them out. And additionally, this podcast is sponsored by the Medical SLP Solution. So that is your all-inclusive one-stop shop for all things medical SLP. It doesn't matter if which setting you work in. It doesn't matter if you work in acute care or skilled nursing or home health or pediatrics. Uh, we have resources available for all medical SLPs. Uh, I just wanted a place to provide high-quality evidence-based resources from various experts in the field all in one spot for all medical SLPs so that we can provide the best possible care for our patients. So we have uh, university professors that are blind peer reviewing all of the resources to make sure that they are of the highest quality evidence. They're also adding in additional references and recommended readings if it's a topic you want to dive in more to learn more about. And we also have an online forum where you can ask anybody any of these questions. You can post anonymously. And we also have monthly webinars that were just ASHA CEU approved. So come check us out at medslpsolution.com. We would love to have you join. Uh, I'd love to have you be part of this community. I'm so proud of what we've created. I'm, I'm so happy with everyone that has put so much time and energy into this. And you've got nothing to lose and your patients have everything to gain. So we do have a money back guarantee. If you come, you like the resources, you want to stay for the community, I hope you'll stay as long as possible. But if you aren't satisfied with the material, you can get your money back, no problem. So would love to come have you join our community. So that's www.medslpsolution.com. And I hope everyone enjoys this episode with Dr. Suter. Hello, Dr. Suter. Hi. How are, How are you? you? I'm good. Thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to take part in this. Yeah, it's exciting. I know the Yale Swallow Protocol has been a big hot topic in all of these, so we're so happy you can come and really just give us all the, the scoop. <laughs> so, well, I gave a little kind of blurb about you in the beginning, but if you can tell everyone a little more about you, who you are. Sure. Um, so I work at the University of Kentucky. I'm the director of the Voice and Swallow Clinic here, and I'm an associate professor in the Division of Communication Sciences and Disorders. Uh, I've done research on swallowing disorders for about the past 15 years. Uh, a lot of my work is focused on screening uh, with Stephen Leder, Dr. Stephen Leder. Uh, he and I developed the Yale Swallow Protocol. So uh, that's been a big part of what I've done. I'm also very interested in, in kind of how some of the various medical treatments that we provide for patients, such as feeding tubes, trach tubes, how those affect swallowing. Uh, kind of when we mess with the system, what are we doing to the patient? So uh, that's the other area of interest I have. Cool, cool. And I know you just, I think you were just overseas at the UK Swallow Group. Is that right? I was. It was a fantastic conference. Yeah, I was their yeah. speaker, which was, was quite an honor. Yeah. But yeah, I gave a couple talks talking about uh, actually whether or not we've strayed too far from uh, the clinical swallow assessment and moved too far towards relying on instrumental assessment and have kind of forgotten. Oops, sorry, I've kind of forgotten the patient in the process, which was a stretch for me because I, I am very pro instrumentation. Certainly, I mean that's not been my focus, but but it was it was a nice group. It was kind of an interesting talk to put together. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know lots of people were posting like lots of snippets on Twitter, and so it was interesting to see. So, yeah. And did you guys talk a lot about intervention and stuff too with that? 
Um, that was my actually my last talk was talking about where we're going as a field in terms of intervention um, and how you know I'm really interested in why some of the traditional treatments that we've used are, don't seem to be working quite as well as we might hope, especially for certain patient populations. You know, I work a lot with patients with head and neck cancer. For me, that's one of the most frustrating patient populations to try to rehabilitate because they're just what we know currently about how swallowing works and what we have available to us in terms of treatment. Just the, the two aren't working. They're, they're just a really tough group and these are such young individuals. And, um, what are we going to do with these people? We can't, you know, doom them to a life of being in PO, but we don't really have very good treatments for this individual. So kind of talking about some of that. Um, and then talking about what we know about, um, you know, non-oral means of nutrition and, and whether or not that's truly preventing aspiration pneumonia because the bulk of the research really says it's not. Um, so what are we doing when we're, we're offering these interventions for patients? So yeah, that was part of the focus too. Awesome. Are there specific interventions that you think are worth researching more or? I'd really like to know more about McNeil dysphagia therapy. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about it. I've heard really favorable outcomes from it, but I, I personally have not been to the course. It's something I do want to go to at some point just to learn a bit more. Um, but yeah, I think that, I, I think electrical stimulation, uh, the jury may still be out on that because I don't know if we've actually looked at it using the correct parameters. Um, you know, I haven't found any really compelling evidence in the literature to suggest that it's something we should all jump on, but, but maybe there needs to be more research done. I really think high-resolution manometry, to be honest with you, is going to give us some more information about swallow physiology because I think there's a lot that we thought we knew about how swallowing physiology worked. Ianessa Humbert and her group have done some really nice work talking about how maybe what we thought we knew about swallowing physiology isn't actually true. And Harris has done that, and there have been some other groups that have just kind of dispelled some of what, you know, swallow is supposed to be initiated when the head of the bolus passes the reins to the mandible. Well, we know that's not true for a lot of people. So are we, um, again, are we focusing on the right aspects? And I think high-resolution manometry is going to give us a little bit more information about how the swallow works and, and, and maybe help us to design some better um, treatments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know, especially with the technology with the manometry too. I can't remember quite where I was. I was at some conference and they demonstrated, you know, just the guy just, you know, threaded it down his nose and we watched it on the screen and it was so, you know, it was almost like doing a fees on himself. It was just that. It, that's simple. basically. <laughs> so finally, I've been to the training for it. I mean, it's really kind of freaky for somebody that's been doing fees for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Where you going? You don't see where you're going with high resolution manometry. So it, yeah. it's, 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 I just think it's, it's just going to add another piece to the puzzle that maybe fluoroscopy yeah. and fees hasn't told us about swallowing. So yeah, it seems cool. Yeah. So. Well, neat. All right. Well, that was a fun little diversion, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but thank you. Off for a second too. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. So thank you for sharing all that. It sounds, <laughs> sounded like a cool conference. It was a really good conference. Yeah. And so right. they're talking about high resolution manometry. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. I, we're, oh, the Florida Dysphagia Institute. I heard them talk all about it. And, yeah. Okay. So let's get into it. Let's get into the, the Yale Swallow Protocol. So I guess where do you want to start with that? <laughs> um, I can talk to you kind of about what the impetus for it was. And sure. Kind of how- 
Um, he and I had known each other through, through conferences over the years, and the three-ounce water swallow test is something that's been around since, I believe, the late 1990s. We didn't develop the three-ounce water swallow test. Um, but Steve and I shared similar clinical interests. We were similarly skeptical in terms of accuracy of clinical swallow evaluation techniques. Um, he used to, as a matter of fact, tease on every single one of the patients that, for whom he was referred uh, for evaluation. So uh, we actually got together because of an ASHA award that I had that was uh, where you identify a mentor, a research mentor. Um, and we got to talking, and he was really interested. He'd heard about this France Water Swallow Challenge. He thought it was a bunch of hooey. Basically, so we really came into it very skeptical. Um, and he had been doing the tests on his patients for years just to kind of see and kind of collecting data. Um, I was in an academic situation at that point and um, had all the time in the world to analyze data, but didn't have patients. So uh, we kind of got together and that worked well because, again, we were both kind of interested in does the clinical swallow assessment, does this screening tool, which is just a very simple drink three ounces, if you can't drink it continuously, or if you cough or throat clear, uh, Pippo and colleagues said within one minute of test administration, we now say immediately after test administration. But regardless, if you fail that three ounce test, does that really tell us anything about whether or not the patient's aspirating? So um, that's... That's kind of where we started, was just looking specifically at the Brown's Water Swallow Challenge. And we had data on about 3,000 uh, individuals who had dysphagia related to a number of diagnoses. And this was a, a referred sample, so these were patients that the physician already thought uh, perhaps had dysphagia, um, which is an issue. But, but regardless, it was a referred sample. Um, and so we had fees information, and we had... Um, information regarding France water swallow challenge results and compared those and actually were quite surprised. We found that if people failed with the France water swallow challenge, um, that we didn't always necessarily know that they were aspirating because a lot of those people actually ended up on instrumental assessment to not be aspirating. But the, the really promising result we found was that people passed, they weren't aspirating on uh, an instrumental assessment. So we thought, hmm, maybe we have something here. Um, and we have a, had a whole lot of other data, kind of data that, that we all, as speech pathologists, I think, have trained to routinely collect, so things like orientation status, command following, oral mech. We were all doing those things, but when we looked to the literature, there really wasn't any information saying that those aspects of the examination told us anything whatsoever about the patient's following. So we, we both kind of were like, hmm, why are we doing this? Does this tell us anything? Does this make any sense that we're spending time? our time and the patient's time collecting this information. So we went back and looked at the data. Um, at that point, we had 4,102. I can tell you that because I entered all 4,000. <laughs> <laughs> um, 4,102 um, participants, and we looked to see if the orientation status command following told us anything. We found that it actually did. Um, if people weren't oriented times three or if they couldn't follow one-step commands, they were more likely to be aspirating. Uh, and then we looked at the oral neck examination because, again, it's something we've all been taught to do. We all think it's a very important aspect of our evaluation, but we wanted to know if it told us anything about the functional aspect of the swallow. And what we found was decreased lingual range of motion was a, an independent predictor for whether or not somebody was aspirating. So 
how we came, and that's all just to say that that's how we came to Yale Swallow Protocol. So kind of how we came to Yale Swallow Protocol was we thought, okay, we have these interesting bits of information. We have the orientation command following that tells us something about kind of the overall patient status. It doesn't necessarily mean that if a person's not oriented or if they can't follow commands that we're not, that they're automatically going to be aspirating. But it's just one more piece of information. And then we had the oral MAC exam that gave us another piece of information. And we had our data from Marianne's water swallow challenge that we knew was giving us good information about aspiration risk. Um, and so we put those together, and that's how we got to the swallow protocol. So it's a very long answer, but that, that's no, that's yeah, got. that's wonderful. Yeah, I think everyone wonders if one day you just picked up a Dixie cup <laughs> and said, "Chug this," you know. So. <laughs> Oh, it's great to hear the background. <laughs> so, all right. So, so I guess if anybody doesn't know how to do it, can you tell us exactly what it involves? Sure. So, um, the first step is actually, um, asking the patient the orientation questions and it's, it's orientation times three. So tell me your name. Tell me where we are. Tell me what year it is. Um, we do the command following in conjunction with the oral MEC examination. So open your mouth, stick out your tongue, smile. Uh, we're looking for facial symmetry. We're looking for lingual range of motion. Um, and then there needs to be some degree of clinical judgment. And I think this is where people get confused. Then if we deem that it's appropriate to give um, three ounces of water to the patient and the patient needs to obviously be alert and awake, um, they shouldn't have a trach tube. We don't recommend that because we don't know, quite honestly, if patients with trach tubes are going to be more likely to aspirate silently if they do aspirate. Um, but but they need to be relatively, it, It's I don't know how to explain it other than to say you need to use good clinical judgment. Would you give this person grants of water? If in your clinical judgment or if you're having a nurse do this, if in the nurse's clinical judgment, it's okay to end this person grants of water, and then three ounces of water and you ask them to drink continuously. Don't stop. I want you to keep drinking until it's all gone. Um, a failure on the Yale Swallow Protocol is based, is based solely on the three ounce water swallow challenge. So, uh, if they cough, if they don't drink, uh, the entire amount without stopping, that's a fail. I think a lot of people know about the coughing. A lot of people seem to not to get hung up on the part of if they stop. If they're not continuous drinkers, that's a failure. I have a lot of patients that stop. Um, they just do. Patients will come in and tell me, you know, there's no way that I can drink three ounces without stopping. And I'll say, that's fine. I want you to try. You have to stop. You stop. And then we'll move on. But, what was but the, um, I guess, what made you guys go with that continuous three ounces? Like, why, why not just... Why not the single sip? That was based on the PIPA rule um, and their criteria, and, and it 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 makes sense from to me. It makes sense from a coordination of breathing, swallowing sort of standpoint. Three ounces. People always ask why three ounces. It seems like a fairly functional amount of liquid to ask somebody to swallow. It's not you know, it's not a huge amount. If we left somebody to their own devices, they're probably going to pick up a cup of water and drink about that amount. We know a normal bullet size is twenty ml. Um, or 20 milliliters for thin liquids, but the three ounces is not completely out of the realm of possibility. Somebody, so that's how we got the three ounces. Um, we've actually done subsequent research, and then, then um, there's a systematic review that Marty Brodsky is actually first author on that was in chest. 
uh, I believe it's 2016, I'm on the paper, but um, where we looked and we compared water swallow tests that included smaller bolus volumes, so uh, like five milliliters or less, um, versus the larger bolus volumes, which were 90 milliliters or higher. And we actually found that you really do need that larger bolus volume uh, to get the sensitivity that you want. Because with a screening test, what you don't want to have is people passing the screening who are, in fact, aspirating. I'd rather over-refer than under-refer. So screening tests, you're going you're to have a lot of people that fail that aren't aspirating when you go to the instrumental. But what you really don't want is people passing who are aspirating. Right. Yeah. Cause I guess if, you know, you just give them the normal teaspoon sip, you know, as opposed to the continuous three ounces. Yeah. Right. So that smaller sip, if you have somebody that fails, okay, it has high, high specificity. So if you have somebody that coughs immediately after that smaller amount, okay, probably they're aspirating. The problem is if they don't have any overt signs or symptoms of aspiration, you can't be sure. So if you use that bigger volume. Okay. So they fail. So what happens now? What we recommend uh, is that you go on to instrumental swallowing assessment. Um, readily acknowledging there are a lot of speech pathologists who work in situations where they don't have easy access to instrumentation. So what I now say is you can go on to a full assessment in whatever form of assessment you feel is necessary. Ideally, that would be an instrumental assessment because you suspect now that the patient's aspirating, we need to figure out if, A, they are in fact aspirating, but more importantly, when and why, because obviously that's the part that we're going to treat. We're not going to be able to um, based upon any other method but an instrumental assessment. But if the reality that the SLP situation is that they only have access to a clinical swallow assessment, you do a full clinical swallow assessment and then try to make an educated decision about how to manage your patient. Um, and we, we can get into that a whole lot more if you'd like. Um, there are a whole lot of issues. And, and again, it, as you and I kind of talked about at the beginning, I'm, I'm very pro-instrumentation. Um, if you have access in any way, shape, or form, I, I would advocate you do that. If your facility is on the hunt for fees equipment to be able to provide an instrumental to these patients who do fail the Yale Swallow Protocol, uh, please check out our sponsor, NDOHD, that's NDOHD.com forward slash contact. And if you're going to be at the Dysphagia Research Society meetings in Baltimore on March 14th through 17th, stop by their booth for an opportunity to play with the True HD fee system. Uh, Additionally, at the DRS meetings, you can check out a preview of their all-new patented technology for calculating pharyngeal bolus residue. The calculated residual scale is an exciting new technology that will provide a calculated quantification of observed bolus residue in patients with dysphagia during fees. The calculations happen live in real time for each and every frame of video produced during fees, and also be sure to stop by their booth to discuss research opportunities with this new technology. That's ndohd.com forward slash contact. Um, I, yeah, I mean, if you want to go there, I'd love to go there. because it's, it's an issue that I'm just so passionate about, too. You know, I, I just tell everybody all the time, like, nothing surprises me anymore because I'm always surprised with what I find. You know, you always suspect one thing on a clinical and then you do the instrumental and it's something you never could have could have found at the bedside. So you find somebody's dentures lodged in their blood. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. 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 Um, no, I absolutely think for the right patient and, and 
and that's kind of what I was talking about in England. In England, I don't think every patient needs an instrumental swallow assessment to give us the answer that we need uh, for certain patient populations. You know, if they have advanced dementia, it, if it's not going to change the, the outcome of your um, treatment or your recommendations, then, then certainly not. But for those patients who um, have the potential to benefit from our interventions, I, I don't know any other way to get around it but to say that we need to do an instrumental assessment because, unfortunately, the reality is right now, you and I both know, that a clinical swallow evaluation can't give us the information that we need regarding pharyngeal, particularly the pharyngeal phase of the swallow. We can't tell about basic time retraction. We can't tell about hyolaryngeal excursion. We can't tell about a lot of different aspects that are really important uh, and what we focus on in our rehabilitation. So then... What do you do? Because that's not a satisfactory answer for a lot of people who are in the situation where they don't have access. I know you advocate for um, SLPs really being their own advocates and, and demanding access, and I absolutely am with you. I think we need to stand up as a field and say, you know, this is not acceptable. Physician, you're asking me to treat a patient without the benefit of understanding what's going on with my patient, you wouldn't do that with somebody who suspected suspect that they had cancer, yet you're asking me to do that with a condition that's equally life-threatening, um, or maybe not equally, but, but is, it has the potential to be fatal, um, and we don't have the information. So somehow or other, we as a field need to just start pushing and saying, this, this isn't okay. Um, I, I don't know that we're ever going to get to the point with a clinical swallow assessment where we're going to be able to make those sort of judgments. I don't see how that's going to happen. Yeah. I think especially now that we're learning more about what is normal and the wide range of everything, how can we? You know, there's you can palpate till the cows come home, but are they eliciting a swallow? We don't know, you know. Right. Well, and we don't know that sticking your fingers on somebody's throat tells you a darn thing about initiation. The pyolaryngeal, we don't know. I, no way you're ever going to be able, I don't think you're ever going to be able to tell about basic time retraction, extent of pharyngoesophageal segment opening. You just can't. I know people have tried, but I, I just don't think you can. So. Yeah, yeah. I know I got sucked into a conversation. It was in a home health group today. And they were just saying, you know, it's home health. We don't do instrumentals. No one gets instrumentals in home health. And I was like, but they all swallow the same. Like a dysphagia in home health is a dysphagia in skilled nursing is a dysphagia in acute care. Like we can't just say because you're homebound and you have to go somewhere for an appointment, you don't get this test. Right. Absolutely. And I don't think the solution is there. If the patient can't travel outside their home, then I I don't know. Do mobile companies like yours go into homes? It depends on the state. Some states they can and some states they can't. But, you know, I think what's important to remember is Patients are homebound, but they're also able to get out for appointments. Right. So, you know, some SLPs just write it off and say they're homebound, but the exception is they're homebound except for appointments. Right. So a lot of them are going out for appointments, and insurance will pay for the transportation for them to get there, which a lot of people don't realize. Right. So. Yeah, and we're seeing quite a few people from home health, so we do get those referrals, but but yeah, I I, I agree with you. I see the same sort of thing. Is it's well, you know, patients homebound, and you know, maybe is it really worth the trip? Or in a nursing facility, I'm, I'm seeing on these these forums that it's taking a month for some of these patients to be able to get out. So then, what do you do? And we need more companies like yours, right. um, where, where, where they can the instrumentation can be brought to yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. 
So let me go back to the Yale Swallow Protocol, because I think I, I thought that if they failed, do they instantly have to be NPO pending an instrumental? They are supposed to be uh, nutrition pending an instrumental, but then again, that begs the question, if you're in a skilled nursing and the patient has no non-oral nutrition, what do you do? And, and obviously, I'm not advocating for you to start the patient pending access to an instrumental assessment. I think in that case, you have to do a clinical swallow evaluation if you don't have immediate access to instrumentation and you have to make an educated decision and very carefully monitor the patient and um, just observe. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what else to suggest. Yeah, yeah, because I know a lot of people just instantly will, like, write off, you know, and say, oh, I can't use the Yale because I have to wait a week or two for instrumentation. I'm like, well, I don't know that. You know, I mean, it stinks that you have to wait a week, but is 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 that so bad? I, guess. Well, <laughs> I don't know. And what were you doing in it before? What were you doing before you had this screening protocol that we know evidence to support its use? It's it, you know, it works. So what were you doing before? You were doing a clinical swallow evaluation. Okay, this is giving you one more piece of information, and then hey, let's make an educated decision until we can get the, the testing the patient needs. Right. I mean, I think, I think it's worth its weight in gold as far as advocating to, you know, our administrators or to our physicians by saying, Hey, look, this is a valid protocol that this patient failed. And the next step is to get an instrumental. So you're telling me we're not going to do that. <laughs> so, right. Well, and conversely, if the patient passes, then you can think about, you know, these people that, that we might have been waiting and waiting for an instrumental. Okay. Now we know they're okay. And that, that's the part I think that makes a lot of people really uneasy it is it not so much the people that fail i mean that that's certainly been one area of controversy but it's the people that pass the people really get uncomfortable with because then what do you do and by definition with a screen any sort of screen you pass the screen you don't get any further intervention which in our case means you get a diet and you know you're on your way if the patient's an inpatient, if they're a skilled nursing facility acute care, you know, we're not leaving them in this vacuum where nobody's ever going to follow up with them. There is obviously medical follow-up of some sort, even if that's not always the SLP, somebody's watching them. Um, but yeah, I, a lot of people get, get more uncomfortable with the people that pass. Yeah. I did. I actually had two questions from people that said, okay, so the Yale takes care of the liquids, but now right. what about the solids? Right. Well, Steve and I were in disagreement about what we do about the solid. So, um, what Steve always suggested was if the person had no teeth, they got a pureed diet. If they had teeth, he recommended a mechanical diet, which is well and good. And his, his response always was, what would I tell the judge if I gave somebody something solid who had no teeth? And, and that's well and good. But you and I probably both have had patients. I have a lot of patients who eat steak and, and apples and whatever who are edentialists. So what I do is if the patient passes the protocol, I'll go ahead and give a, a graham cracker or something solid and see how they're chewing. I, I want to see how they're chewing and then um, make the recommendation for either mechanical or I, I really, really hate to put people on pureed diets. If I can avoid it, it I will avoid it at all costs. So yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. So do you recommend kind of going into an entire CSE at that point or just give bites of a cracker? Just give a cracker and then we go. 
Um, you know, we have follow-up data because that, that again, is what people are looking for. We did publish one study looking at five days post-administration of Yale's follow-up protocol in an acute care setting just to see, are people tolerating the diets? Are they eating enough to maintain their needs? Um, for up to five days within acute care, honestly, is about as long as we could follow people out. And they were. And then we have data that are unpublished. We presented those data if I ever get around to um, revising the manuscript. Um, we have data from 14 days out. We did the Sue Brady at Marion Joy where they followed for 14 days after they passed Yale Swallow Protocol and they were, were doing fine. You know, beyond that, in terms of follow up, there are other intervening factors. People could have just a medical status that could affect the following function that have nothing to do with accuracy of Yale Swallow Protocol. So I feel fairly confident that yes, if you want a diet, that you're going to be okay. So, yeah. Cool. But again, awesome. that's where people get really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, I, I mean, I love it. I, I, I've always been an advocate for just doing the, the most effective thing. You know, why are we doing 97,000 things when we don't know what any of them are even telling us? Right. And that's exactly what was kind of how we came at it. Why, why are we doing all these times? Why are we palpating the master? Why are we, you know, having people open their jaw against us. What is that? How about we watch somebody's wallow and see what happens? Um, and so, yeah, if we can get the same information with fewer um, items, why would we not do that? Yeah. I think, and that, I think also with what's coming down the pike with all the Medicare changes too, I think these things are even more critical because we may not have a hundred days to treat a patient, you know, so why wouldn't you just get in there and do what's effective, see what needs to be done? Yeah. So I think it all, it's, you know, a big circle as far as, you know, affecting payer source and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, so let's see, what are some other questions we've had? I think we kind of talked about a lot of them. Um, can it be modified? I get that question. Um, some people, I've had people who have asked about modifying it to if they, if, um, person fails three ounces within liquid, if they can bump up to three ounces of nectar. We've never looked at that. So the, the answer is, um, I don't advocate people doing that. I don't have any evidence saying that that's a safe or an, an accurate way to assess people's swallowing. Um, I've had a couple questions actually this week from people who are wanting to know about adding the smaller bolas because a lot of people get very uncomfortable again because we're using three ounces. They feel as if that's too big a volume um, to start with. I don't think there's any harm in that. And like I said earlier, I think if you give a smaller bolus volume, like a, a teaspoon, if you give them, if the, give the patient something like that and they have overt signs and symptoms of aspiration, then, then I don't think there's any reason um, to say, okay, now I suspect you're aspirating. I'm not necessarily going to move on to a larger bolus volume. Again, we don't, we haven't done that research study. It's a research study actually I'm hoping to do very soon. Um, kind of looking to see if that adds anything. And so, um, I don't know that it's necessary, but I think it, it, it's something that would make people more comfortable and, and perhaps make that larger bolus volume a little less scary for people if we say, okay, start with a smaller bolus volume, see what happens. And But again, it, it's speculative at this point. The research has been done on three ounces. Yeah. 
I think it's so funny how we just overanalyze everything. Like, why can't we just do the protocol like you made it? (laughs) It's interesting and people ask me questions and it's like, oh, gee, that's a good question. I really hadn't thought about that, but but this works. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) All right. Um, So I think you mentioned before you don't recommend doing the test on patients with trachs. I think there's some other exclusion criteria. Is that right? Yeah, we, we also um, are a little bit leery about doing it with people who've had head and neck cancer uh, and have had radiation treatment for head and neck cancer. That's based on anecdotal evidence. We've, we've um, had a few patients in our clinic because I, I routinely give you swallow protocol on my patients, and, and in clinical practice, again, we see a lot of patients with head and neck cancer. We've had a few where they've just, have silently had extensive radiation uh, where they've, if they've aspirated, they've aspirated silently. And so um, I don't know, but my gut kind of tells me based on just the, the, the few people that we've seen that perhaps that's not the best patient population. Now, interestingly enough, I just read a study yesterday where people have done a hundred milliliter test um, with people that have had neck cancer and have found that it works really well for that patient population. So I don't know if we're being overly conservative, um, but we haven't done research. Uh, and again, it's, it's yet another research study that I'd like to do. I'd love to find out if the people with trachs, you know, that's based on evidence that we have to suggest that that adductor vocal cord response diminishes over time if somebody hasn't had air flowing up through the glottis for a prolonged period of time. We don't have any research saying safe to get three ounces. I, I can't imagine getting that through an institutional review board and say, I'm going to see what happens if somebody um, with a tray weighs three ounces of water. Um, but I, I don't know. It's just based on other empirical evidence, we've always kind of said don't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess talk a little bit more about how it's it, it may not be appropriate for everyone. So you're, you know, you kind of said use your clinical judgment. I guess are there some some other glaring populations that you would walk in and say, no, we're not going to do. Yeah, you know, it's that clinical judgment piece that's been so hard to teach people. And and the part is somebody who's taught graduate students for at this point sixteen years now. It's it's the part of education that, that that's the hardest. I, I it's just. Sometimes it's just that feeling you have, but you know, I worked acute care, so I was doing this a lot in acute care. It's that feeling you have when you walk in the patient's room and, and you look at the patient, it's just like, okay, there's, you know, they're not alert and awake, or they're barely able to sit up in bed, or they're falling asleep every other sentence. There, there's just something, it, kind of your gut feeling that, that this person's not going to take three meals a day no matter what I do. Um, so those sort of patients, you know, if they're on non-invasive ventilation, probably, or if they're, they're on face masks, particularly, we get a lot of referrals from people that were on face mask. And as soon as you'd remove the face mask, they de sat. Well, okay. Maybe swallowing's not the top priority for this right now. So, so those sort of patients, um, you know, I, I don't know how to, to kind of explain it other than, it just there are patients you walk in immediately and you're just kind of like, okay. Yeah. I think that is such the hard piece too, because it's like, we have to get over the comfort level. You know, we say, oh, we're not comfortable with that, but yet we have the data that the Yale works. But yeah. then we also have to use our clinical judgment to say, 
no, this patient can't swallow. So, you know, I think, I think we just have to kind of open our eyes to what is out there and what we do have data for and, and understand that. Well, and the other piece of it is what would this, per- I, I always, the more I practice, the more I've started thinking about what is this person going to do if I'm not standing over this person, if I hadn't been called in to see this person, if this person hadn't received a referral to come see me, what would this person do on his or her own? And the, the, the answer is probably that person's going to try to eat and drink. But wouldn't you rather have an evidence-based protocol that tells you something about what's happening using what what is really honestly a functional amount of liquid and see, and you know, the other piece of this is that I think a lot of people misunderstand is that we sit, we stand over people and say, you must drink all three ounces. That's, that's not the case. If they stop, fine, we're done. If they cough somewhere as they're drinking, okay, stop, we're done. We don't just say, keep drinking it. You know, it's three ounces. Oh my gosh, you have to finish it. So uh, that's the other piece of it. So, um, I don't know how I got up on that thought, but that, that's kind of where yeah, I Yeah, no, I, it's, I had a guy yesterday, actually, that it was a new SLP at this facility, and she called me in, and the guy's been, MP, I don't know why he was MPO, nobody could ever figure it out, you know, I'm sure from an acute illness forever ago, but um, I went in, and he was he was eating and drinking off his neighbor's tray to begin with, and she's like, do you see what we're dealing with? And I'm like, well, yeah, so clearly, why didn't anyone call me sooner, like? So he's been stealing his neighbor's food every day and, you know. And doesn't have an aspiration pneumonia probably, right? Right. Right. No, no. So, yeah, just want to know why he can't eat. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, so let's, I guess, kind of switch gears about, so this is norm for SLPs, but you've also mentioned nurses. Yes, and that's the other thought that I, I meant to get to. So I think that's the other thing that a lot of people have gotten really uncomfortable with is um, somebody other than a speech language pathologist uh, administering the test because I, I think for a number of reasons. One being swallowing is our domain. If anybody's going to deal with swallowing, it should be uh, the speech pathologist. We've re- received specific training in that. And so, and I, I totally agree. We, we as rehab professionals, should be the, the preferred uh, providers of care for individuals with dysphagia. But there's evidence to suggest, and we published a study, Heather Warner is, is first author on that, um, we looked at nurses administering uh, the Yale Swallow Protocol and compared accuracy of nurses administering it to speech-language pathologists administering it and found that they really match up very well in terms of accuracy, nurses can, if they're trained to do so, absolutely administer this protocol. Um, at Yale, what they've done is they've, they've incorporated that into their yearly competencies. So there's a video aspect um, where they, they do a, you know video training. It, it's not, Steve used to show these videos when we would present. It's not rocket science to tell how many passes or fails a three-ounce water quality test. Um, so it's, it's just going over that. Um, the oral mechanism examination is really just a binary sort of, is it intact? Is it not? Um, it, it's, it is subjective, but again, we found that, that nurses and speech pathologists really match up pretty well in terms of their judgments of adequacy, um, in terms of um, movements of the, of the tongue and, and uh, the mouth. And then the orientation and command following, nurses are 
pretty much routinely doing that anyway. And then the clinical judgment piece, nurses are with these patients 24-7. They know these patients. In some cases, they think, I mean, in a lot of cases, they actually know the patient better than we do because they're with them a lot more um, than we are. So I don't see any reason why nurses can't and shouldn't uh, be doing this. And, and particularly when you think about, you know, when I worked acute care, it, it inevitably Friday afternoon, four o'clock, the, the, you know, the order would come in or the patient would be admitted over the weekend. We weren't staffed on the weekend when I was working acute care. So you've got a patient who comes in, the physician's concerned, maybe this person's aspirin, maybe because of, of whatever the diagnosis is or because of patient, uh, past medical history. And if you're saying speech pathologist is the only person that, that can evaluate this person, they come in on Friday, so let's say it's at 7 p.m., you're gone for the weekend. They're going to be sitting there till Monday morning, which means you're prolonging length of stay. Uh, it means that the patient's NPO for a prolonged period of time when maybe he or she doesn't need to be. So, I, again, that's why we, we think uh, and our research supports nurses uh, administering the protocol. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I got a question today actually from a girl that does home health and she had wondered if how you feel about OTs or PTs doing it because in home health, sometimes those are the ones that open the case. So right. if they could do the screen and then, you know, either rule out, you know, speech doesn't need to come see this person or yes, they do. Um, you know, we haven't done the research on this specific, you know, um, professionals, but, but I think with training, again, it, it's not, a screening is meant to be a simple, easy to administer sort of protocol. This is, it's, it's not, again, it's not rocket science to figure out if somebody passes or fails this. So it's probably a pretty controversial statement to make, but I would say with proper training, if they're the, the first line um, people that, that go to see these, these patients, I, I don't see any reason to say that they can't or shouldn't, uh, but they need to be trained. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you think of it from like the PT standpoint, if they have a really simple screen too, and I tell the man to kick his leg and he can't do it, then okay, PT needs to come. You know, I guess <laughs> it really doesn't seem like rocket science. No, I mean, if you think about it, we all kind of do that. If you work in a multidisciplinary setting, I work in a, a multidisciplinary ALS clinic where, you know, we'll tell each other, oh, he really needs you or he really, we know. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Is there anything, anything else you want to cover or? No, I mean, the, the, the thing for me that, that I keep seeing over and over on, on the, the forums, it, in terms of the Yale Swallow Protocol, I think a lot, there's been a lot of misunderstanding um, from people. I, I think people, um, particularly with the way that perhaps some of the research had been presented in the past, thought that we were being very cavalier and that we weren't concerned about patient safety and that we were just throwing this at everybody. And, and we absolutely care about patients. I mean, I, I, I don't want to harm my patients. And, and I, I, I don't think any of us set out about this to, to harm patients. So um, that's that's one of the things I want to make sure is that people understand is, is, is we are doing this. This is an educated sort of decision-making process that we're working towards to make um, informed decisions about our patients. We have 4,102 participants. It's, it's one of the largest, if not the largest database in terms of swallowing that we have. It, it works. I'm hearing from other people, and if you look at some of the other literature, 
where people are using three-ounce water swallow challenge, it, that test is incorporated in a lot of different screening tools. If you go to the literature, and, and I won't name specific tools, but there are other protocols now that incorporate three-ounce water swallow challenge, and you'll find that people are finding if people can't finish it without stopping or if people are coughing immediately after, it is a good predictor. So um, I, I think that's... That's been the hardest thing for me to understand is why people get so um, so cautious about it, so worried about it, um, because it works. We're, we're not, again, just handing this over to people willy-nilly. There, you, you, are, you, you don't go into this blindly. Um, you're a speech pathologist. Use your clinical judgment um, with people. But, but yeah, I, for me, that, that's been kind of the hardest part of, of understanding the pushback because there's... <laughs> As you probably well know, there's been a lot of pushback um, from people, and, and I've never quite understood what makes people so uncomfortable. I know. About, um, I, know. I think just because it's something new, you know, and it, it's, I guess, totally gone against the grain for, you know, 20, 30 years, I guess, you know. So if you've been doing the same thing for so many years, and then you hear this thing that's just the drop in the bucket is, you know, can be done in two seconds, it's right. shock to the system. <laughs> It was a shock to the system, but you know what? I, there's been a whole lot of discussion. I don't remember which of the forums, but there's been a whole lot of discussion lately about if you get to the point in this profession where you're not willing to change and not willing to learn new things, yep. you're going to harm somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Evaluating what you're doing. It's been, you know, I, this is, this is what I do in my spare time. I go on Medline and start pulling all the new, the latest literature that, that's out there because it, you need to be willing to change because we're ultimately what we're all here for is to help our patients. And, and it, we're not to the point where we're, we, we have a perfect treatment. I wish we'd get there, but I don't think we're ever going to where we're going to have a panacea for dysphagia. Not. Um, so people need to be willing to change. And yes, change is scary. But yeah, I, th- I think that's goes along with all medical professions, you know, and I mean, that's why I wanted to start this podcast because, you know, there's you guys doing great work and there's us in the trenches every day and we need, we need to know what's latest and greatest so that we can change our practice, you know, and there, I just kept finding such a huge disconnect, you know, well, did you hear about this or did you hear about that? And, you know, not that it was any fault of anyone's just, you know, the information wasn't getting out there for some reason, you know, I don't know if we're not reading enough journals or, you know, People are busy. People don't yeah. have access to journals. You know, continuing ed money is dried up, so it's hard for people to get to these continuing ed um, conferences. So I I get it. Um, but, you know, is that an excuse for not continuing to learn? There, there needs to be – there are avenues to do that. You know, those interest groups are great. Podcasts like yours are great. Some of the forums that are out there are great, but, but again, take – Take the information that you're getting with a grain of salt and consider the source from, from which you're getting the information. I, I, I think the best piece of advice that I can give to anybody is, is view everything with a, a healthy degree of skepticism. Really do your research. When it, and, I, and I'm happy to answer questions. People are skeptical about Yale Swallow Protocol. I'm, I'm happy to answer the skeptics because I, I can back it up with research. And so I, I think, I don't think skepticism is a bad thing. I think keep, yeah. So what's, um, is there a future? Is there a next step or what's, 
Yeah, um, with the Yale Swallow Protocol, we're actually looking at it with um, some specific patient populations that we hadn't uh, explored as much. So, uh, for instance, ALS, um, I used a lot in our ALS clinic, but um, really didn't have any evidence saying that we didn't look at that patient population specifically when we when we did the 4,100. We had 14 for a few people with ALS, but we really wanted to see uh, if it's appropriate for people with ALS. Um, I do want to look at the addition of a smaller bolus and see if that adds anything, if we can improve the specificity, um, because our, our sensitivity is really good. It's about 96%, but our specificity is quite a bit lower. So again, we have a lot of people failing who, when we do an instrumental assessment, are really okay. So um, looking at that, um, kind of where I'm going with the Alswalo protocol, and I have some other kind of areas that, that I'm, I'm venturing off into. So, yeah. Yeah. So the, the 4,000 patients that you did it on, mm-hmm. those were patients that had already been suspected of dysphagia. Is that right? They were. Yeah. So they were a referred sample, which is absolutely a, um, a methodological law, if you will. If you look at most of the research that's been done on any screening protocols, it's really been based on a referred sample and, and, the issue there is somebody made a decision that this person was or was not at risk for dysphagia. Um, there's been some um, research, and I think it's Altman is the first author on that, where they've actually looked at what are the presenting diagnoses that are actually associated with dysphagia in an acute care setting. And it's not always those kind of diagnoses that we think like stroke and, and neuro, neurogenic disease. It's, it's people coming in malnourished, people coming in dehydrated, and, and those um, sorts of things are, are often more things that, that don't necessarily trigger always net, uh, referral to an SLP. But the whole point of that being are, is whoever made the decision to refer to SLP using the correct criteria to refer to an SLP? Are they missing people from the get go? Um, you know, just because somebody comes in with a broken leg doesn't necessarily mean this person doesn't have to stage it, but, 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 what criteria is the, is the referring physician uh, making? So it's possible that we had a sample that was more skewed towards having dysphagia. It's possible we missed people uh, because the, the referring provider just didn't pick up on it. So um, in an ideal world, what, what should happen is everybody that comes in, um, you can either pre-select the, the patient diagnosis or you, you know, so you can say everybody who comes in with stroke, we're going to give this protocol to you and see what happens. Or you can say we're going to take all comers in a, in a medical facility, which I can't imagine what a huge undertaking that would be. But but we're just going to see um, who this works on. So yeah, so that was one of the flaws. I, there are there are all sorts of flaws with that first study that that have been pointed out to us by others, and that I'm, I'm happy to point out. Um, that's part of the research process to, to, to kind of learn. Previous mistakes and build upon, um, build upon and, and improve your methodology. So that that's what we've tried to do. I love hearing about that stuff because it's how we learn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Suter. This was great. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. 
So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. <laughs>